and the providence of God. And uh, I, I'm just certain that you have encountered people who have a misunderstanding of miracles. Uh, in fact, uh, my experience has been most of the outside world has a misunderstanding of what a miracle really is. Um, and, and I didn't look in the dictionary to, to identify what the, what the dictionary says that a miracle is. But uh, throughout the Bible, I've come to some conclusions about that and see if you agree with my summation of what a miracle is. I said a miracle is an act of God beyond or outside the laws of nature physically recognized by man. So any absolute miracle is something beyond what God has already created in his laws of nature, but we can recognize that miracle when it occurs. Of course, we're not going to recognize any miracles, and we'll get into that during down the lesson. But many miracles have been recorded in God's Word, and we have absolutely no doubt that those, in fact, did happen. Um, providence. You know, the, the, there's, there's one time in the Bible that the word providence is used, and it's not even talking about God. It was talking about the leader of the uh, the. The, the nation there in, in the uh, Palestinian area. But uh, my definition of providence, and see if you agree with this, it's an act of God utilizing the laws of nature not physically recognized by man. We can't see physically the things that we know that God did as providential elements in our lives or other lives. We can see how people live and we can see how they act, but we can't see how God is doing that. And quite honestly, uh, if you know specifically how he does, you need to teach me that because I really don't know specifically how God does that, but we know that he does. And I have some examples where, in fact, he says he does that in the Old Testament specifically. Uh, some examples of what people have identified as miracles, you know, and generally speaking in today's world in the vernacular that we use and the happen, happenings of life. You know, I've heard it more than once that when a child is born, it's a miracle that a child is born. Well, that's not a miracle. God didn't enact that beyond the laws of nature. He established the laws of nature and how children would be born, and that's a fact. Uh, so he doesn't intervene specifically in that. Now, you get down to the details of a child being uh, conceived, there is an act of God involved with that because that conception, when that egg is fertilized, uh, a child is conceived, and that child is a human being from that point on, and that child is a human being with a soul. So a soul had to enter that, uh, that element of... Uh, physical being when that child was conceived. So there is an act of God, but that's part of the natural uh, uh, flow of things so far as what God established when he established this universe and when he created mankind. And we hear uh, that when someone is really sick, and you've seen this in your life, I know, and we've seen it uh, uh, at times where someone is diagnosed with some really severe situation or illness and they make a complete recovery from that in a short period of time we call that a miracle 
Well, I, that's not a miracle. Uh, it may be that the providence of God was involved in some of that, but we couldn't see it happen. Uh, and uh, God's providence covers all of mankind the, all over the globe. And again, just that happening is not a miracle. But a lot of people have said that, and you know that they consider that being a miracle. And also, when we have these, these horrible events like earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and some horrible vehicle crash, and someone comes out of those unscathed, unharmed, we call that a miracle that they survived that horrible incident. Well, that's not a miracle. Again, God's providence may be involved with that. We don't know when that happens because we can't see God's providence. We can't measure that directly. But we know it's not a miracle. And I've even heard this, and, and you may have, uh, you know, in, in, in the world that I have been in for the last 40-something years, when somebody gets a promotion in a job, well, it's a miracle they got that promotion. <laughs> <laughs> and I've kind of thought that myself. <laughs> no, please don't. I, I don't mean to make light of that, and I don't mean to make light of miracles, but uh, I've heard that said uh, you know, that uh, something happens of great benefit to someone's life, and that's a miraculous event that they consider that God enacted. Well, it's not. And again, providential inter intervention may have been involved in that, but we can't see it, and we don't know that. Um, we know uh, that God's providence is existent today as it was in Old Testament times and in first century times when the New Testament was written. What about prayers and answers to prayers? We don't see physically what God does relative to answering prayers of a righteous man or a righteous woman. We know that he hears them. We know that he understands but we don't see the results of that specifically, unknowing that God's providence was involved in answering that prayer. Uh, you know, God made us uh, promises in the New Testament uh, when, uh, you know, a, a righteous man uh, uh, can do various things and God says that good things will happen as a result of that, but... Uh, again, we don't see those. We can't identify specifically what the providential elements were uh, that God enacted. Um, for example, this, this recovering from a serious illness, you know, God is everywhere. He knows everyone. He controls, uh, trust me, I believe that God is in absolute control of this world that we live in. He's in absolute control of everything. We do know, because he's told us this, that time and chance happens to us all. Ecclesiastes 9.11 says that. Um, so time and chance plays a great part of our lives, but God doesn't allow that to overcome his intervention when he wants to do it. We got a new preacher here. How much did God play in the providential process uh, for that new preacher to be uh, coming to White Oak? 
we can't see it, but we're thankful that uh, Rick Owens is coming to be our new preacher. Just how much providence did, uh, was there in that uh, process, we don't know. But we believe that God's going to take care of us. We believe that God has our best interest in mind. Um, Some of the Old Testament scriptures that uh, that we can identify uh, that, and for in fact, God's intervention with miraculous events that we can see, knowing that it was in fact a miracle because God did that, and it's beyond the laws of nature that could have made that happen. We can also see where he's told us that he's intervened, intervened in people's lives in a providential way. And one thing that we haven't talked about much, but do you know that from the beginning of time and the beginning of creation, which was a miraculous event, all of creation was a miraculous event, creating the universe and the earth and mankind, obviously, was a miraculous event by God. But prior to that happening, heaven existed, eternity was there, God has always existed, Christ has always existed, His Son. And there was an event in heaven that uh, was uh, just tremendously uh, significant in that some angels fell from grace from God, one of those being the devil or Satan, Lucifer or other names he's been called. He was allowed to have some miraculous power on the face of this earth. The devil had miraculous power. When that animal talked to Eve, that's certainly not nature. Animals don't talk. When that mule talked to Balaam, that's not, uh, that's not nature. But when that that, that satanic element of animal talked to Eve, that was not God talking. Satan actually did that, so that's a miraculous event that Satan uh, 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 completed. So Satan uh, had a part in miracles as well. God allowed Satan to do that. Um, Genesis 3, uh, 1 through 15, about... That, uh, that event where Satan intervened and talked to, uh, to Eve and then she, she sinned and her, her husband also did. John 8.44 gives us a, a clue about Satan and the devil. Ye are the father. Ye are your, of your father. And he's talking to uh, Pharisees there. You, ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So Satan had an influence on people from the beginning of time. Uh, and we'll see where that has developed. Uh, we'll see where miracles has developed as, as our lesson continues. What about Noah and God's intervention in Noah's life? 
God made a decision to destroy the earth's inhabitants and the physical form of the earth with water. Prior to the rains that rained 40 days and 40 nights, there had never been a rain on the face of the earth. Now, I didn't do all of the homework on how many years had passed before that occurred. But we know that the face of the earth was considerably different than it is today. It was a paradise, basically. It was surrounded by a layer of water in those heavy clouds that protected it from the ultraviolet and other rays of the sun to make things as they are today. But after that flood came and destroyed the earth and all the inhabitants thereof except those that were in the ark, uh, the earth was considerably different. So that was a miraculous event. God told Noah, I'm going to destroy everybody. That was a miraculous event. So we could, those people could see that, and we can read about it. No question about that being miraculous. How much uh, providence was involved in that with Noah, don't know, but we know the miracle was that he destroyed the earth. And he also set the bow in the clouds or in the sky to remind us that that would never happen again. I think that's a miracle too. So we see the result of that. It became a natural event, uh, but it began with a miracle of God. That's what he, he said. I will set the bow there to remind you that I'll never do that again. And the story of Joseph. Uh, the story of Joseph is one that just intrigues me considerably. Uh, uh, of all of the scripture that's written about Joseph, and there's much of it, there was nothing ever negative said about him as a young man, nor as a middle-aged man, nor as an old man. Joseph was a good guy. We, don't, we know he wasn't perfect because no one is. But um, God gave Joseph the, Joseph the power to dream, Genesis 37, 5 through 10, when he dreamed that he would be above his brothers and his parents brothers didn't like that at all. They didn't like him to begin with because his, his father favored him. And he also gave Joseph the power to interpret dreams. At Genesis 48 through 22 and Genesis 41, 1 through 40. Those were miraculous gifts that God gave to Joseph. People could see the result of those. It wasn't an act of uh, of providence, it was a miraculous intervention in Joseph's life that other people could see. What about um, Genesis 39:20? well, Genesis 29, 2, that says, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. That leans to being providential as opposed to miraculous. People couldn't see God's life, or Joseph and God intervening in his life, but he was a prosperous man, uh, and the Lord was with him. Genesis 20, 39, 21, But the Lord was with Joseph and, Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Again, I think that was a not a miraculous event, but a providential event in Joseph's life. 
And what about God using Joseph to provide the path for Jacob's family or his Israel's family, he was known as at that time. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. To flourish and prosper in number and strength in Egypt. You know, Joseph was uh, captured by his brothers and thrown in that pit. And one of them said, wait a minute, we really don't need to kill him. Uh, and let's sell him to these Ishmaelites that came along and they sold him to Potiphar in, uh, not Potiphar, yeah, Potiphar in Egypt. Anyway, Joseph became uh, what he was in Egypt and came to considerable power in that country. And uh, Genesis 45, 7 says, And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. God's providence allowed Joseph to do all of that. That's what he says. Not in a miraculous way, but through his providential intervention in Joseph's life and the lives of the people around him. Uh, I just don't see how that we can conclude anything else. What about Moses? Uh, The providential and miraculous events that happened in Moses' life. And there's a lot written about uh, Moses in his life when he was born and placed in that ark of of reeds. And uh, the uh, Pharaoh's daughter found him and his mother uh, was uh, raised him. That had to be providential to a large degree. Providential that Moses was raised as an Egyptian child, the son of Pharaoh, basically. And, uh, of course, we know all of the miraculous events that... uh, Moses enacted through the power of God. And when we're talking about people enacting miracles or people performing miracles, we know it's not the people performing those miracles. They had the power to ask God to perform those or to enact those. And that's what happened any time that uh, someone performed a miracle. They enacted a miracle through the power of God as, as Moses did. And what about uh, David killing that giant and later becoming the king of Israel? Was that a miraculous event that he killed that giant? I don't think so, uh, but I think there was a lot of providential intervention <laughs> in, in David's life when all of that happened. You know, he killed a lion and a bear, basically bare-handed, uh, probably providential that he was able to do that. Uh, because God had plans for David, and those plans were fulfilled in his becoming king. Of course, he didn't, he didn't like everything David did, but he sure loved him, called him a man after his own heart, and provided greatly for David and his sons after him. What about Satan enacting miracles? God allowed him to do it. He allowed him to talk to Eve. That's certainly a miraculous event. What about when he was walking and talking to God? Satan was. He said, uh, what about my servant Job? What about him? You know, and you know the story of Job. God said, uh, you can do all these things to him, but you can't kill him. And Satan did all of those things to him performing miraculous events that uh, severely uh, uh, caused Job much grief, much pain, much harm, much loss. But Job was uh, faithful through that complete event. 
but Satan was allowed to do that. And but Job overcame all of those uh, temptations that Satan faced him with, and all of those events that made him well. Hopefully, was going to make him weak, and turn away from God. But Job didn't do that. So Satan had some powerful uh, power on the earth in those days. In the first century, when uh, uh, the time of the Bible was, well, the New Testament was written and Jesus came along, I don't mean that lightly when I, when I say Jesus came along. In the fullness of time, uh, he was sent, and we understand that. He was sent for the purpose of living a perfect life and then dying the perfect death. But when he was actually here, uh, Satan uh, was still active on the face of the earth. What about all of those devils that occupied people, those uh, spirits, evil spirits that occupied the people? That's not nature. Nature is that we have one body, one mind, and one soul, and one spirit to make that body alive. But Satan had the power for these evil spirits to occupy someone's mind. So there was more than one soul in that one body. And of course Christ overcame that a number of that, at least two or three times I know of. So Satan had power still in the first century. And what about uh, Jesus? He performed miracles when he was on the face of the earth. He turned water into wine, John chapter 2. That's a miracle. No providence uh, about that. He turned the water into wine. Everybody saw that. They knew what he did. What about him raising people from the dead? He did it more than once. But, you know, the one that everyone remembers is, uh, and I do too, is when he raised Lazarus from the dead. There's a whole chapter in the book of John about that story. John chapter 11, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, it's appointed unto man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. Well, that's the natural process. But Jesus intervened and raised Lazarus from the dead. He died more than once. That is, the physical death. And something that intrigues me, um, and and probably does you, is what about when uh, Christ was... uh, was captured there in the garden, and the soldiers were going to take him before the councils to be uh, tried falsely so and to be crucified. Well, Peter didn't like that at all. When they grabbed Jesus, he drew his uh, sword or dagger or whatever it was and sliced off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus touched that high priest to heal, put the ear back on, basically. And... You know, I've got to think that was really a sharp knife. Uh, I don't know the circumstance, but I can just imagine that uh, that Peter intended to kill the guy, and maybe he was going to cut his head off, and he sliced, and the guy probably ducked and got his ear as opposed to his whole head. But anyway, just something to think about. We know that Peter cut the guy's ear off, and Jesus put it back. Absolutely a miracle that he could do that. You know, and we know he healed people a number of times, you know, from that awful uh, disease of leprosy and others. So miraculous events occurred in the first century. What about other than Jesus being able to enact miracles? 
What about the gift of the Holy Ghost? When people could speak in tongues and prophesy and had uh, miraculous knowledge, miraculous faith. The gift of the Holy Ghost was the ability to enact miracles. It was introduced to those uh, followers of Jesus, well, in fact, before this, but uh, specifically the apostles that he had identified received the power to enact miracles. This was after uh, Matthias was uh, appointed an apostle. Acts chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the time of the season which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight." So Jesus told them the Holy Ghost is going to fall upon you. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind that filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the apostles were given the power to enact miraculous events through the power of deity, the power of God, the power of the Holy Ghost. So the apostles could do that on their own accord at that point. Of course, uh, we were told that this was done to, uh, to prove who they were and what they were saying was absolute truth. Mark 16. And there's there's a recording of this miracle in Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 is a significant chapter of the Bible where the church was, uh, it's recorded where the church first began on the day of Pentecost following the death of Christ, 50 days following. After the apostles had received the power to enact miracles, they started preaching to the people who were there. And they all preached. They had the power of tongues. And, of course, the power of tongues was the ability to speak in a language other than the one that they knew. It was as though I could speak Arabic or I could speak uh, French or German. I can't do that. And I'm not going to get a miracle that allows me to do it. That's past, and we'll go into that. So in Acts chapter 2, when they were all preaching... Peter made a decision. He said, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble here, but I'll tell you what, uh, what I have concluded this means. Exactly what it says. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. Peter was the one talking. All the other eleven were silent. Every one of them heard Peter in their own language. Now I've heard it said that can't happen. That's impossible. That'd be a miracle on the hearer. 
I don't think so. It says Peter spoke to them and they understood him. Directional sound from Peter speaking. We can't limit God's power to do anything. And that seems like a very small thing for God to do. It says Peter was talking. It didn't say all 11 of them were. He stood up with the 11, but he is the one that talked. You know, Peter is the one that Jesus gave the promise to. I'll give unto you the keys to the kingdom. He made that promise to him in Matthew sixteen fifteen through 19. He said unto them, But whom ye say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against thee. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus told Peter, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom, and the keys to the kingdom was the gospel. Peter, he was told to preach it first at Jerusalem and later to the Gentiles. First to the Jews and later to the Gentiles. You know, Peter's the one that uh, converted the first Gentile family. These are all Jews that were at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 39, Peter again was talking. But now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and that's the audience that was hearing Peter. And said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, for the promises unto you and to your children to all that are far off and even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The gift of the Holy Ghost here, I am convinced, means the miraculous element to enact miracles. It didn't say how they were going to get that. It didn't say that it would occur at the time they were baptized, but they would receive that gift of the Holy Ghost. And that was Peter telling them that. Of course, we know that that was the first time that the gospel was preached and some 3,000 souls were saved. He, was, that was the, he, he used those keys to open the door of the kingdom to those people as Christ had promised him that he could use. And again, the keys was, was the gospel. And we know in Acts chapter 10, and some, some time later, and I don't, know the different, I don't know the amount of time between that occurrence as recorded in Acts chapter 2 and when, it, when Peter went to see Cornelius. I don't know how long that period was, but it wasn't overnight. It was some period of time. Acts chapter 10, we see that Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius, who was a Gentile. He opened the doors of the kingdom to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews through the gospel. The Holy Ghost gave the apostles the power to enact miracles, but how did other believers receive this power? Repent and be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It didn't say how that would happen, but we learn how that happened later. 
And by the way, for the promises unto you and your children and all those that are far off, any time you read about the promise, at least I'd say 90 plus percent of the time in the New Testament, it's talking about the great promise that God gave to Abraham. And in his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. When you read about the promise, more times than not, it's talking about that great promise God gave Abraham. And this was it. Through his seed, these people would be blessed. It's also interesting to note that the Holy Ghost was given to Cornelius and those in his house before they were baptized. We don't find that anywhere else. When Peter was preaching to him, the Holy Ghost fell on that audience of Gentiles. And they said, was with Peter, said, how can we, for, how can we forbid these to be baptized? They've been given the Holy Ghost as we. And they were baptized, became members of the kingdom, members of the church. We don't find that anywhere else, just that one occurrence, because that was such a significant event, allowing God to have his uh, grace given to those people who for all of those hundreds of years, it was to the Jews only. Okay, they could proselyte into the Jewish world, but the gospel, I mean, the, the, Jew, the Jews were the ones that God favored, no doubt about it. He doesn't need more, but he did at that time. So the significance that Peter gave uh, the keys of the kingdom to or opened the door to the Gentiles is, is extremely significant. So how did other people receive the ability as promised to be able to enact miracles? We find out in Acts chapter 19, 1 through 7. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be an Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, And and to what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John barely baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, which is Jesus Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. They didn't receive it at the point of baptism. They only received it after the apostle laid hands on the believer. Then they received that gift. And you know the story about Simon, uh, Acts chapter 8, I guess it is. He was a believer. He said, wow, I'm seeing these people do that. I'd like to do that too. Can I pay you money to do it? And they said, your money perish with you. You need neither lot nor uh, whatever in this matter. And... Uh, and said, pray that uh, your sins be forgiven you. So uh, no one could, other than the apostles, could lay their hands on a believer, even if they had the power to enact miracles, speak with tongues, prophesy, whatever. They couldn't pass that on to anybody else. Only the apostles could do that. Rocky?
yeah, we're told that even if we saw miracles, if we didn't believe already, that wouldn't cause us to believe. Um, and there are scam artists in the world today that say they can perform miracles, but we know they can't. Um, you know, Simon, uh, the, the wording was, you, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. You were not part of the apostles, and, you're, and the lot didn't fall on you. You're not Matthias, so you can't do this. No one else can. So, uh, We learn in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13, that the ability to enact miracles from God has ceased or will cease and of course in our day and time has ceased and we'll see how that came charity never faileth but whether there be prophecies they shall fail whether there be tongues they shall cease whether there be knowledge it shall vanish away for we know in part and we prophesy in part but when that which is perfect is come then that which is in part shall be done away when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know, know in part, but then shall I know even as I also am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. It says, miracles are going to go away when that which is perfect is come. So what is that which is perfect? James 1.25 says, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being a forgetful hearer, but a doer, uh, not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this yet man shall be blessed in his deed. Looketh into the perfect law of liberty. James 2.12 says, So speak ye and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Logic demands that we conclude that the perfect law of liberty is the word of God. The Bible, as written by the Christ through the Holy Ghost and to man. Uh, John 14, and of course, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All inspiration is given by the inspiration of God, that the man may be perfect, thoroughly furnished in all good works. The Word is the only thing perfect in today's world. When that which is perfect has come, the Bible has been completed, and we've had it for some hundreds of years. That's the only thing that is perfect and it has already come. Therefore, there was no need for miracles anymore. The only reason for miracles in the first century was to, for them to confirm the word with signs following. Uh, Mark 16. So, miracles went away. That is, after the, all the apostles died, no one could pass that on to anyone else. The word was enough. The word is perfect. What about the miraculous intervention of Satan? Is it still active in today's world? First Peter five eight says, "Be sober, be vigilant, because vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walked about seeking whom he may devour." I think in the first century when that was written, that was absolutely true have no reason to think that it wasn't. It's what it says. But, in Jude 6, it says, And the angels was kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. I think we must conclude that the miraculous events as enacted by God has terminated because we have the word the miraculous events that Satan enacted 
has terminated because Jude 6 says that they are reserved in chains unto darkness unto the judgment of the great day. What about now? Are we, are we tempted by Satan today? James 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. I know I didn't have time to get into the, to the uh, uh, providence of God in our lives today, and we could go to... Uh, any book in the New Testament and see where God has made us promises if we live a righteous life. Time is up. I don't see any visitors in the audience. Uh, if I'm overlooking you, I apologize. And it's appropriate at the end of every service that we offer the invitation for any of those that would like to respond to the invitation. If you have a a need that we can help you with, please come as we stand and sing. Jesus is calling, calling, calling. Jesus is calling today. Why should I linger, linger?